and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zaug, and today I have the pleasure of hosting Life Abraham, co-founder of Public. Public is the stock investing app with a social, community-based focus, making stock trading approachable and free for everyday people, not just the YOLO Robinhood bros. Public has taken social media and fintech by storm in the last year and just raised $65 million in a Series C backed by A-list celebrities and VCs alike who are also prominent users of the platform. The app is anchored around a nicely designed, newsfeed-style forum where you can see what friends, celebrities, and others are investing in, and then engage with people to see what they're thinking. I've used it, my girlfriend uses it, and it's just a really cool app. Life comes on for maybe my most information-dense episode yet, diving deep into his mission for public and the toxicity of stock market culture, incredible marketing tips centered around retention, content marketing, 90s boy bands, SEO, and a phrase he coined called asset marketing, how founders can actually build and instill values in a company as it scales, and a lot more. This is a great episode, and I'm excited for you to dive in. Let's get started. Hi, Life, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're excited to have you as a guest today. Hey, Ryan, thanks. Where are you quarantined at the moment? Where have you been? In New York, in New York. Been in New York the entire time. My co-founder Yag and I took a little space in Soho where we locked ourselves in to kind of get away from the kids. But yeah, I've been in New York the entire time. It's about end of November that we're recording this episode. Is New York dead or alive right now is what I want to know. New York is always alive. Come on. Love it. That's the answer I'm going for. I haven't been back after living there for many years, but all I see on Twitter is that New York is dead. So it's good to hear. Nah. That's what people that are not in New York say. (laughs) Of course, right. While they're in a ranch in Montana. There's a lot I want to cover on today's episode, so let's just jump right in. Life, how would you describe public? What is the app and what problem are you looking to solve as there are already a lot of no commission apps out there? So public is the investing social network. So when we think about of why people haven't actively invested in the stock market, we think there are these two major components to it. Number one, it's like a financial literacy. People just kind of being scared about the markets, not really knowing what all the acronyms are, not really 100% knowing how the stock market works, right, et cetera. And then kind of connected to that is the second issue that if you think of the culture that has been created around the stock market and any type of community you find online, it has been very like a bro culture, right? White male dominated, Wolf of Wall Street memes, oh, right? Yeah. Hashtag YOLO calls on options trades, <laughs> short-term thinking, et cetera, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And that's like the culture you have, right? It's like daily day trade on Twitter and like, ah, you know, that is the that is what you would connect right now if you think about, you know, stock trading and stock traders. So we recognized that the stock market seems scary because it's cultures. And so hence to, to truly democratize the stock market, you have to change this culture. And so when we started public, number one, we built it as a social network. And so we always refer to it as we are, that we are a social network first. So on public, you can actually follow other people. You can see what other people invest in. People can make their portfolios public, not dollar amounts, but they can see what kind of companies people own. When you buy or sell something, you can actually add a, like you can, you can add a certain caption to it of why do you believe in this company. And therefore, it really enables people to kind of learn from each other's experiences. And that can be because you follow someone who's just you know, more experience in yourself, but it can also be because you'd like more of a gym buddy, someone who is like on the same level as you, who you can talk to and kind of have that experience of being new to the stock market together. And that makes it way less scary and so on. And then to make sure that as you build that social network around the stock market, to not just replicate that same bro culture you have out there, we made the 
conscious decision to not go after the trader bros first, because then you would basically just replicate that same culture in the end, like you just end up being that. And so we actually went after way different types of people demographics. We went, you know, we partnered with creative communities, we partnered with communities who are, you know, advocating for female leadership and things like that. To a point where now, for example, on the app, it's 40% women on the app. So not equal, but it's still tremendously better than any other investing community you can find online, likely. And the culture is just way more inviting, way more long-term thinking, right? 75% of people on public say that they are long-term investors first and so on. So the vibe is very different. It's less scary and it's much more collaborative versus competitive. That's honestly amazing and such a needed service. I can definitely attest as I, I fit the YOLO calls culture and target demographic and the culture can definitely be very prohibitive. And I haven't seen many apps at all kind of take this approach to the stock market. So then when someone onboards with public, what options are available to them and how are you making it easy for new investors since you're claiming to really target people that are not necessarily familiar or comfortable with the stock market traditionally? So it's pretty straightforward, right? Investing in stocks and ETFs, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, so US securities. And it's straightforward with that. So we don't do margin accounts, which is basically credit to trade with. We don't do options trading. We don't allow day trading, which comes from not doing margin accounts. And we have made those decisions. We're not going to say we're never going to do it. We might do it in the future. But if so, with certain safeguards around it, because we believe if you build the market for specifically new investors. Also, as a company, you have the responsibility to create an environment that has a little bit more protections and safeguards in place. So even an example, when Hertz filed for bankruptcy, you know, and basically a bunch of retail investors suddenly just went nuts over it. It was like whatever, the Finbro-like Nirvana. Over whatever yeah. impulses, right? Normally when a company, you know, files for bankruptcy, the stock farmers happen the same year, but suddenly on the Hertz thing, it suddenly picked up again. and. That happened because a lot of retail investors started going. We didn't see too much of that happen in the public community, actually. But just generally, a lot of people uh, started to invest in it. And we thought it was actually fairly risky because if you look at all the numbers, you kind of could see that they would likely never get out of that because their debt was way higher than any money they could ever raise to pay that off. And so likely this company is, you know, uh, it's just in the proceedings to actually go bankrupt. And with that, we actually took the step to take Hertz off the app. And so if, like, if you still own the stock, you could still sell it but you couldn't buy it anymore. And that was for us a decision to basically protect investors to not just you know, blindly follow something they see online without maybe understanding that this company just filed for bankruptcy. And so that inspired then a new feature, which we launched the following week after we made that decision, which is called safety labels. And so securities that the SEC deems as more risky, bankrupt companies, specialized ETFs, you know, so ETFs with certain leverage behind it, things like that, as well as like, you know, micro or nano cap companies, so companies with, with a very low market cap, which can be more volatile. And those are the types of securities that the SEC deems as more risky. And so those now have actual safety labels. And before you can purchase them on the app, you actually have to slide to confirm if you really, if you understand potential risks and so on. And that's just a moment of education that's contextual in that moment. And those are the types of moves that we think are very important. And so Hertz, actually, then we took that lock out again. We put it back to be purchased, but the safety label was then on top of it. At the end of the day, we don't want to be the ones who are playing God necessarily, but people should still make their own decisions. But we still do believe there's a certain responsibility for a platform like ours to take some responsibilities and to help people 
to potentially have certain education that is in contact at the time it happens, because especially when it comes to more risky securities, we just think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, I really love that feature and wouldn't be surprised at all if these things become more commonplace very soon. You know, it really is a tough line to toe between setting up these guardrails and then letting free markets, so to say, play out, especially when you're dealing with the epicenter of capitalist thinking that is the stock market. Like anytime I log in onto my major brokerage or fintech app, there are zero guardrails in place at all. I can put just an irrational sum of money into an out of the money call. And I don't think I'd even get a, you know, are you sure you want to do this checkbox? So good to see you stepping up here, even if it's just these very simple features such as these checkboxes and also, you know, limiting day trading. So going to, you know, the people that you built these features for, your users, had you developed a target blend of users or demographic? And how have your users developed over time? Like, did you really plan at, at the start of targeting 40% female audience? So we did a bunch of work that, like from the very beginning, where the community kind of sparked pretty much at those ratios already. And I think that's also why it kept being that high. Because especially when you build a community, it's important to understand who you're for. But then also, if you build something that should have true mainstream appeal, and we always say we're building a mass consumer company, and as a mass consumer company, you got to make sure that everyone's represented. And that when you go in, you can actually find people like yourself. And you see that you're represented, and you see that you're, you know, that this is something that could be for you. So we had a focus on that from the very, very beginning. And so hence, there weren't like, you know, drastic changes. And there was this one moment in time where suddenly things started to change. But it was just part of how we approached the community building. And we see community as part of the product. And so for us to build what we want to build, we just had to make sure that we kind of grow the community the right way and we acquire the right users early on. Um, I often say from a growth perspective is that especially early on, you become who you acquire. And so you have to be very mindful of who you acquire because whoever your first users are are the ones who will give you product feedback. They're the ones who are using the product, who will ask for certain features, et cetera, et cetera. And so specifically in the early days, I think it's important to be very mindful of who you acquire because that will have that will drastically impact the data points you get and the feedback you're getting and therefore drastically impact who you become in the future. So how did you really go about acquiring these great customers then? Was there maybe one or two methodologies or metrics that you relentlessly focused on? We acquire majority of our customers organically. And as part of that is obviously just word of mouth, right? And word of mouth, I think, comes through different pieces. Number one, it's the product itself. And so does the product itself have certain viral effects to it, right? Are there reasons of why I want to invite my friends other than just incentives like get your free stock or something? And then the social network is very obvious, right? You want to have people invite your group, you want to share content out, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a lot of kind of viral hooks just built into the experience that will automatically kind of spread outside of the app itself. That's an obvious number one. Then the second piece, I think, falls into having a very clear definition of who you are and therefore being very clear on your mission and what comes and why people can get excited about what you're building outside of the pure utilitarian aspect. I think specifically in fintech, you see pretty much all players just focus solely on the like rational side, right? It's like how much gains, the benefits you get with your debit cards, 
the APY on your savings account, <laughs> right. blah, 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 right? It's all just benefits, benefits, features, features, features. The issue with that is everyone can build features, right? It's very hard to defend that over time. Everyone can build features. And when you then focus on incentives, like, you know, who is the higher APY or what kind of great offers you can attach to your debit card and things like that. That is a game that, you know, you can play and it has a role here and there. But if that is your strategy, right? Good luck succeeding in the long term, right? Because it's like you're just diluting your own business model. You're just competing with something that anyone can do. And so I think that is just very hard. But in fintech, that's how most, if not all, players operate. And I think it's also very heavily because many of these companies are kind of built by these, by these you know, MBA types, no offense, <laughs> <laughs> that just come from this rationale, right? And they come from the spreadsheet thinking and not necessarily the human thinking of trying to understand how people actually work. And we always say in investing, people invest with the heart and their brain. And so, yes, the brain is important and the rational aspect is there, but most people are not rational, right? People invest with the heart. People make actions with the heart, right? You choose your clothing and your brands because of what you want to identify with and what your friends like and what circles you hang out with and so on. And I think it's the exact same thing also with apps that you use and so on. And so we're doing a lot of work to also make sure that what we build has a clear mission to it and that the mission is not just something we talk about, but it's something we actually act upon. And that falls into how we build the community and who we let into the community, who we feature in the community. It falls into what kind of features we build back to the safety labels, right? The safety labels are a clear execution, actual feature, utility, execution of our mission. And therefore, at the end of the day, your brand is what people think about you, and it's built by all actions that you do. And that is not just feature and benefit driven, but it's also you have to kind of try to win people's hearts. And that is something that is just not as rational. And when you're in public, what you will see is a lot of people are making investment decisions with their heart, right? They invest in green energy. They invest in plant-based food. They invest in female founders. We had some black women on the app who throughout the first, when the first Black Lives Matter protest started to happen, um, start to invest in the four S&P 500 companies who are led by black CEOs in order to put attention on the fact that there are only four. And those are, I think, perfect examples that investing, especially investing in a social setting, is not just driven by rationale, it's driven by your values, your beliefs. And that also creates the conversation around it that creates the emotional connection to the company that you invest in and so on. And it makes you proud to be an owner that is more than just thinking of what percent are you going to get back on your investment. And I think that is something that we have a high focus on to not just focus on the rationale, but also focus to kind of win people's hearts. And that kind of builds into kind of everything we do. Yeah, that's really good commentary. And I really just love this piece on community and heart versus just having good features, which at this point in fintech, especially with partnerships continuing to explode, are, these products are just starting to be pretty commoditized, these features. So I'm always, I guess, humbled when I ask a family member who might not be fintech savvy about a product and like you said, they came, seem to care a little bit less about shaving points off something or tax loss harvesting. And instead, just they really put a premium on brand and experience and mission that I think many of us and yes, MBAs too undervalue, but I'll excuse your MBA jab. So pushing a bit more into marketing community, anyone who follows public knows you have just an arsenal of celebs on the platform and as investors. 
What's the thinking on getting people like Tony Hawk, who you just got on the day of this recording, on public other than, you know, the obvious marketing play? So we find it important, again, back to the trying to change the culture around investing, is that the community is not just people who are deep in finance or deep in investing, but it's people who have deep understanding of certain areas of pop culture, certain domain expertise in something, et cetera, et cetera. We often say that if you, for example, are interested in you know, the future of fitness, you maybe want to talk to a Peloton instructor and not just to the analyst who analyzed Peloton's last earnings report. And I think that is you know, just something that is important to create that kind of like diverse view of community, but also to basically send a signal to everyone that the stock market is truly for everyone, hence the name public, it is truly for everyone and you shouldn't be scared about it. And that even for famous people to show some vulnerability and to tell stories of how they started to invest and so on is another way to just break down the barriers because it just eliminates some of that yeah, some of that fear, so to say, of getting started. And so I think that's why we think it's important to have like all of these diverse people on the platform who are not just finance people. And I think that's super, super important. And so with that, early on, we had a few celebrities invest. And so JJ Watt invested and Will Smith invested and Casey Neistat, the YouTuber, and Sophia Moroso, who kind of girl boss and so on. And that kind of kickstarted for us a little bit, you know, to get some of the people also on the app and to make sure also to position the company closer to the pop culture. And again, to also lead with your heart and not just your brain. And with that, I think we've just brought on a few other people that you might know. So again, Tony Hawk joined today, Adrian Grenade joined, Shaq joined the app. And I think it just helps to understand that like, hey, the stock market is not just for people who are deep in finance, but it's truly for everyone. And it is something that should be for everyone also, right? That was the original purpose of the stock market. And that's something why we find it important to kind of bring other voices into it. That was fantastic. Thank you. So then a little bit related, can you talk about what K-Factor is and how it relates to retention? So first off, I feel like you're bringing up retention because I put it into that article I wrote about it. But um, <laughs> when you build any type of product, the first thing to focus on is retention, right? The easiest growth mechanism you can have is retention, right? So make your customers not churn. If you make them not churn, the pressure of acquiring new ones you know, comes down. And so be a good company that cares about your customers and that will just bring your LTV up. If your LTV goes up, like your lifetime value of a customer goes up because you hold, because they stick with you longer, you can spend more money on acquiring them. And so retention is just key. Retention, I would say, is maybe the number one metric you should always focus on. K-factor is a measure specifically, and we use it internally, like is a measure that for your variable efficiency. And so off every customer you acquire, how many new customers do they bring in? And so you acquire one customer, that customer invites half of a user, and so your K-factor is 0.5. And the higher your K-factor, the cheaper your acquisition cost becomes because you acquire more organically, and therefore brings your kind of blended customer acquisition cost down, which then also again means you're just acquiring more efficiently, and that takes pressure off your LTV, creates a more healthy business, et cetera, et cetera. But for us, we focus heavily on K-Factor because we have a high focus on acquiring users organically. And that's why K-Factor is one of the core KPIs that we're tracking. And then another marketing tool that I've seen you write about is asset marketing. I absolutely love this idea. I found some great products throughout asset marketing, finance, health, dental hygiene, sleep. Can you tell us more about this concept for our listeners that are not familiar? What is asset marketing? 
I don't know if that's a real term. I feel like I made that up. But, <laughs> but um, so asset marketing is what I describe as basically things you create that create exposure, therefore customer acquisition for you, that stick around forever. And because they're evergreen, these evergreen things become assets that are just sitting out there in the internet or wherever. And therefore, over time, they will just keep sending you users. It might be very little users, but if you have a lot of assets flying around, they just start to compound. They just start to accumulate, so to say. A few examples are there is if you sponsor YouTube videos, I like the idea of sponsoring YouTube videos that have evergreen content. So don't sponsor the blog that loses relevancy next week, but sponsor that content that still has relevancy four years from now. The educational video about something general, for example. Because that video will just keep getting clicks. And so if you have your ad in that, right, then that will still get exposure three years from now, which that vlog video might not. Give an example. Another example is you might create certain evergreen content. And that might be a certain calculator you put into your into your SEO pages. And it just gets traffic forever and ever. It might be another app you create that you put out there that starts to just build a user base that has some organic kind of growth aspect to it, but it just keeps sending the users forever and ever. And when it comes to asset marketing, how I often see it, it's like boy bands in the 90s. And so you just never know what works. And so you just got to throw kind of, you just got to cast 10 bands together. <laughs> you throw them against the wall and then two of them will have a hit single and they will drive you some traffic and it's great but then they kind of die out and once in a while someone listens back to that song and okay, but you know, it's going to be very little customers in the future, but one of the 10 might become the Backstreet Boys and they will just send you traffic right. forever and ever and ever and ever. But you have to be okay that seven is not going to do anything for you. And seven is just going to die. You put a bunch of time into it. You spend money on it and you're going to have seven losses and you feel like bad about it and you don't know if it's worth it. But it can be if you have those three wins. And so I often refer to asset marketing in terms of how to approach it, kind of like boy bands in the 90s. I love that. And one example that I saw that kind of got me into this idea was I saw Disney had pretty much started just owning all of the websites that talk about like names for children. So like boys' names, girls' names. And then they just have plugs for Disney Plus and all of the amazing things that Disney can do for your children right there. Like talk about climbing the funnel. Yeah, and I think that is obviously, I think was a great SEO strategy for them, right, that they've done. Yeah. Um, and it's obviously super low intent traffic you get from that and so on, right? Yeah. But the stuff just, it accumulates over time. And that's the thing with it. Like, if you make it once and you put it out there, you kind of keep it alive, but you don't spend too much time on it anymore. But then it keeps sending you traffic forever and ever. It's great, right? It's a wonderful thing. But I think many people are not focusing on it because they're just very short-term driven. You think about what to do this month and this quarter and just to be like, what can I put my next investor update? A lot of these things just take time to kind of really show. A buddy of mine made this app called Baby Name. That's kind of like a Tinder for finding a baby name. So like you download the app, you have like these cards with baby names and you connect it with your partner and then you swipe names. And when you have a match, then it goes That's into incredible. a list. You know? and. <laughs> So he did that with a few friends together. They just made this app out of fun, you know, put some internet purchases in it and whatnot. And they put it out. And I think for a year and a half or something, nothing happened, right? They had like very little downloads, nothing. But my buddy, you know, a few days a week, he just spent always like sending like three to five emails to just like some mommy blogs around the world and da da da, and just like trying to see it to see if someone would write about it. And then one day, 
just some big mom blog picked it up. And from there, a bunch of other blogs picked it up. And then they're completely viral. And now this thing has multiple millions of downloads and they're making serious real money with it. Oh my it took, God. But it took a year and a half. It doubled around. Nothing happened with it for a long time, right? They kept promoting it here and there a little bit. And then it started to hit. And so a lot of these things, it's just also, you know, you do them, you don't know, you know, and then you feel like, oh, it didn't work, but it just only didn't work because no one has seen it yet. And so you just have to keep finding ways to seed it. And then maybe in the future, at some point, it hits the right networks, it will have a viral moment. Good for your friend. That's a brilliant idea that I feel like would come up in one of my entrepreneurship classes here and everybody would laugh. I think that's <laughs> ridiculous. And here he is. Um, so kind of shifting gears to culture. So I've read that you're a big proponent of setting tone for a culture early on, setting good values. So public has nine key culture values, which I'll share. Honesty kills bullshit. Great first one. Loyalty through care. Autonomy through alignment. Work fast through organized speeding. Urgency with charm. We are grown-ups. We don't make excuses. What could go right and find a way? So you're very big on this, you know, X through Y arrangement, which I really like. How did you come up with these nine? So first off, we're always adapting and changing them. So they're not set in stone. And a big reason for that is because we see them as tools. I think it's very easy to look at the stuff with like a cynical kind of view and be like, oh, they seem like motivational posters, like some cat poster in, in the office. And, and I think it's very easy to just be cynical on that stuff and whatnot. But I believe that principles are super important because they create alignment and efficiency. But they have to be tools. And so if you recognize that it's something you cannot use in a conversation with someone, then you should like to kill them or change them. And it shouldn't be like one word kind of things like decency, you know, blah. And you're like, okay. And so we see them as tools, number one. And with that, we refer to it as that when you build a company, you have to make millions and millions of decisions. And when you scale a company, those decisions cannot be made by the CEO and the founders at all right. times. In the beginning, a lot of them will be made by them, but that is just not a way. That you, you cannot scale that way. It's impossible. And from a cultural perspective, I think it's horrible and toxic if you create a culture where people will not apply their own critical thinking, but they will just think of what do I think my boss thinks is right versus what do I think is right. And if people start to think that way, then you lose critical thinking. You lose an opportunity for people to be truly excited about the work they do because they don't feel like they're doing their own work. They're feeling they're doing the work for someone else. And it's just highly inefficient. And so the way to really democratize that or like to kind of see that decision-making throughout the organization is with very clear principles. So that as these decisions are being made, they're made on a certain set of values and a certain set of processes and principles and therefore have alignment and align with how you want the company to operate. And so I think that is just to truly scale a company, I think that's super important. So I see it as a growth tool, right? Growth is not just acquiring users and keeping them, but growth is also how do you scale your organization, right? A lot of companies have failed not because they weren't able to acquire users, but because they weren't able to grow their, like themselves. Yeah, actually, I'm reading through my notes again, and I forgot you added a new principle recently called feedback comes from a place of care. And that's the second value after the first one, which is honesty kills bullshit. These seem to go hand in hand. So why are these your two lead values? Um, I think those two together specifically, I think are super, super important because they kind of go in tandem with each other. Number one, I think honesty is important 
because it eliminates things like gossip and ambiguity and whatnot. And it helps just to make sure that people always know where they stand and that they also can trust whatever you're saying is the way that you're saying it. And you're not talking around something or trying to keep something secret, et cetera, et cetera. And so that comes with wanting to also run a company that has certain transparency internally, of course. Feedback comes from a place of care that's connected to that because if you're very honest, it also can be something that maybe some people have to kind of adapt to, right? It can feel a little unusual at first. It can feel a bit uncomfortable maybe at first, right? If you're kind of new to that kind of culture. And so feedback comes from a place of care is really that principle that defines that, hey, number one, let's all make sure that we understand the differences between feedback and criticism. Criticism is just like, this sucks, right? It's just tells you something is bad, you're like criticized, and that's it. Feedback, the actual definition of feedback is actually suggestions for improvement. And so number one, it's suggestion. It's not direction. It doesn't mean I'm telling you to do something. It's suggestion. And it's for improvement, right? And so and we all together have an interest to improve everything we do all the time. And everything can always be improved all the time. And therefore, if we understand that feedback is suggestions for improvement, we should always welcome feedback in any regard in any way. And that can be negative feedback of like, this should be better, but it can also be positive feedback in terms of like, well, this just happened, what you just did was amazing. Let's say that out loud and make sure that everyone saw this because we want everyone to act the same way in the future and to replicate that type of behavior, to replicate that type of decision-making in the future. And so feedback is really important for, you know, the negative as well as the positive. But yeah, because it's a logical human reaction that if, if you give someone feedback and they put a bunch of work into something and so on, that people will defensive at first. And will first be like, okay, wait, wait, wait. First, I did this because of blah, 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 you know, and maybe then maybe some pointing fingers and blah, 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 you know. And and sure, it's important that both sides understand of why decisions have been made a certain way. So you have the entire context that you can actually, that you can reference. But then I think the, the framing of the understanding of, hey, feedback comes from a place of care, just frames it then again of like, yes, let me be open to this feedback because I understand you're not just trying to criticize me. You're trying to improve everything we're doing. And that is good for the company, that's good for my own professional development and everything. And therefore, this is something that's very welcome in the organization. And by making these principles, you can also use those in situations. And so let's say someone is not very aligned on something and you know you will have a chat with them. That chat literally starts with, okay, first recap, principle one, on equals bullshit. Principle number two, feedback comes from place of care. That being said, boom, 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 boom. And so suddenly everything that's set after just literally rephrasing these principles and just saying them aloud again and understanding that this is something that the company operates under, it suddenly takes away the sense of, oh, this is something personal that like I personally trying to criticize what you've did to I'm doing my job here. I'm operating the way the company is supposed to operate. And I'm acting on these principles the same way like you have the license to do and should do. And therefore, you have a way more rational logical discussion about it and you just create more efficiency because you take the personal kind of inefficiencies that come out of the way. But I think what's important is that this is not just something that comes top down, but it's also that we embrace for people to bring to us. And we have many moments where people in the team come to Yannick and myself and give us very honest feedback. And they do the same thing. They'd be like, hey, principle number one, boom, boom, boom. And I think what's nice about this principle is that also it gives them truly the understanding that they have the license and the power to give very honest, straight feedback to us as well, or to their manager, to their boss, et cetera. And then when that happens, especially if something comes out of it, we're basically being like, yeah, you're completely right. We should do this and this. That we also then communicate that back to the entire team 
and give those people a shout out that they live the principles. So everyone in the organization recognizes that if you live the principles, that is a good thing, right? It's being seen as a positive. It might even be rewarded to some extent or whatever, right? And that, you know, that is something of how the company wants to operate. And so I think it's important that, you know, these things obviously have to go both ways. It's not a control mechanism. It's a mechanism of trying to empower people. Yeah, this is really powerful life if executed correctly, which it seems at public it is. And with that said, life, I think this is a great place to wrap up. I want to thank you for coming on today's episode. This is one of our most information-dense episodes and also went across quite a broad range of topics. So thank you again for coming on the show and I'm really excited to get this one out to our listeners. Awesome. Thanks, man. So after the episode, I thought more about what Life said about getting junior employees to buy into values. And as a former junior employee not too long ago, here are my thoughts. As Life mentions, most of us join companies and see, you know, diversity drawn on a mountain on the wall and just view it as corporate pandering. And I experienced that at my jobs out of college. I couldn't tell you now what the values were of those companies. But I have to say, in my experience this past summer, I worked at a bank out in Menlo Park, and maybe one or two of our listeners are familiar with West Coast tech banking, but this specific office is known for operating on 12 core principles. And during recruiting, I'm hearing this, and I'm sitting in their info session thinking, here we go again, more corporate speak that some officers pushing and will never be mentioned again once I start work. But here's how they made me buy in and how execs listening can make their new team members buy in as well. So over the summer, I saw that every decision, discussion, and feedback session was framed and justified by the core principles. And seeing a senior leader discussing a deal saying, yeah, we missed on core principle four here, but so-and-so crushed it on core principle seven really stuck with me. You know, like who talks like this? But it worked. And all of the leaders, even the ones that came in from other firms at the senior level, all anchored on the same ideals. And you best believe if a new employee sees a leader using the principles, the employee knows that in order to advance, they probably need to start using them too. And it's worth noting that the office has a good feedback culture and hammer home that feedback is a gift, much like life does it public. So there's something consistent here. So I think the takeaway for execs is to have very tangible, punchy principles, not just community or service or clients first, and that you have to routinely frame conversations and decisions around them to hammer them home, both public team meetings and in one-on-ones. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.